0: Do we see you at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Get ready, because this is a long and deep one. So take a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, sit back and enjoy. Today, we're joined by potentially the laziest farmer in the UK. And we go deep into why conventional farming in the UK has failed and is failing and what can be done differently. Why animal impact is so crucial and how you can build a very, very successful business by farming with nature, looking very carefully at margins, costs, input, and most importantly, creating a guaranteed market and why we should all focus on ex-vegans as our target market. Join me and learn about the fascinating journey of farmer Matt. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities, and ecosystems, while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, where, and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in Regen That is gumroad.com slash investing in Regen or find the link below. Welcome to another episode today with Matt Chatfield, the founder of The Cornwall Project. We're going to unpack a lot on sheep, on connections to chefs, on how to build a positive impact on the land in the UK, and I'm very, very excited to have Matt on the show. So welcome, Matt. Yeah, hello. Yeah, nice to be here. We got introduced recently through Ophelia. So a shout out to, to that. Obviously anybody actually that has great guests for the show, always feel free to, to reach out because it's the best way we, uh, we get people on. But let's start with your, with your story. How did you, I mean, not end up in farming because you actually grew up in farming, but you came back to it. How, how did that happen? What made you go away? First of all, and then come back to it? Because I think many people quote unquote escape and don't come back anymore, but you decided
1: to, to actually do. Yeah, it's um. So I mean, my whole thing is I was born in Cornwall, um, and I did start something called the Cornwall Project, but we actually have a well, we had we had a small holding in Cornwall, but we have a family farm in Devon. Um, it's just across the border from from Cornwall, so it's very close. Um, and essentially, um, we've actually farmed the same land for at least four hundred years. Um, so it's only a small farm, but we were basically part of a very big estate. Um, for it and. Incredibly for 360 years, my family actually farmed on behalf of the estate. And I think we were called yeoman. So if you, all my family are basically buried in the same graveyard. I'm um, very humble people, but I'm on one of the graveyards it actually says, um, yeoman. And I think he was born, and that was Josias and he was born, um, in, I think 1770. So, um, and then, so basically it would have been sort of very much mixed farming for a lot of that time. Um, as I do what I'm doing now, I'm actually beginning to go through the history and I can see what my folks basically did. 400, 300, 200 years ago, which is quite incredible. But basically, we're in a very, very wet part of the world. We're in between um, a place called Bodmin Moor and Dartmoor. So the weather comes off the Atlantic, goes up over Bodmin Moor, then dumps all the rain on us before heading off. Um, So it would have been a very wet farm. um, And I imagine for you know all that time, it would be very much mixed farming. So the land that we've actually got is only 80 acres. um, And so my family would have farmed that. Um, and it would have been very much sort of mixed farming, you know, sort of vegetables, sheep, cattle, you know, sort of various things. Um, but then my granddad, um, was very much part of that generation of after the second world war was like feed the nation. Um, and he and the world. Yeah. 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 Feed the world. I mean, I think <laughs> feed everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's very much sort of UK focused. I feel, you know, I'll try to have a world view on things, but. But very much in this country it was I think they realised that during the war, you know, we were like twenty percent, only could only feed twenty percent of our own population. So um and so and it was the advent they suddenly realised also they'd they'd built lots of like weaponry and they realised with the same chemicals they could make, you know, nitrogen fertilizer. So my granddad was um basically encouraged by the government and i I was not of doing research to realise that he was basically forced. Like he didn't do the things the government wanted to do, <laughs> then like you know, that potentially could be ousted from the farming. So obviously he was all working on that big estate, but he basically plowed all the land, um, planted ryegrass, um, drained all the land. So all the water went off the fields into whatever, would have taken out some hedgerows, but he was basically the first person introduced the Friesian cow, um, into like the southwest of England. So for that time, incredibly progressive farmer, incredibly hardworking man. Um, and he basically, yeah, and it's only now. I realized how hard he must have worked to try and have a herd of basically 40 freezing cows on an 80-acre farm in our part of the world. You know, it was quite incredible. But anyway, um about 40 years ago, this, the UK had inheritance tax came in, um, which basically meant all these big estates were ripped apart, basically, and a lot were struggling and had to sell. So my granddad had the opportunity, after 360 years of farming, to buy the land. Um, and it was a huge wow. thing. I and mean, I'm... Forty nine, but I you know, I you know, I was only nine at the time, but it was just such a huge thing that was happening and but obviously he then bought the land. Um, but just after he bought it, like that's when things really started happening for the dairy. You know, I don't want to go to like give my views on Brexit and the European Union, but there were a lot of pressures at the same time hitting farming, basically, particularly dairy farming. I've like had the supermarkets, you know, quotas, all sorts of things happening. So Growing up, my granddad just never encouraged us to farm. I loved it. I wanted to farm. My mum actually started a dairy farm. I used to help her. But it was just never an option because so I think our granddad could see the writing on the wall for small farmers. This was before farmers markets and these sorts of things. So the last thing in the world he wanted us to do was farm. So go, go as far away as possible. Yeah. yeah. So I did. And I, I basically went off and, um, was always sort of grew up very much in the environment. I used to go fishing on my own all the time. I basically, you know, I uh, if you I <laughs> which um always, you know, quite good for you know, a popular chap at school and stuff, but you know, I just always loved my own company with my dog and I'd be down in the river trying to catch salmon actually. Um it just gave me a huge love for the environment. So I went off and did environmental studies at college, um, and then I ended up going into publishing, um, so not using my environmental background. And then I, was, I I always sort of say I got very um hedonistic basically. In in the UK, publishing like now nobody really drinks at lunchtime, but like 20, 30 years ago, they did. So basically, I went to London and for 10 years, it's I a basically worked fairly hard, but drunk a lot, had a lot of fun. Um, and you know, sort of forgot my farmer background. But then my granddad actually got very ill. Um, and it's one of my biggest regrets in life actually is he got very unwell and I just didn't take it that seriously. And I went and saw him a couple of times and then he died. And it was, you know, and then. It was, you know, just a hard time, and I just realized, you know, I, you know, I felt very guilty. And then six years later, my nan, who was very, very close to, she became very unwell, so I actually moved back to Devon. And
0: you f- felt very, because, of course, on the personal side, but also because you sort of lost that. Because you said, then I did research and I understand how hard he must have worked. Yeah, like for that super crucial period in, yeah, in the history of of the countryside and, yeah. and farming, you had a direct access, but you maybe didn't. I mean, there were probably also books in that story. Yeah. There, were, there was a well, lot there that you
1: maybe well, you yeah, saw forgot man, or pushed in a corner. You sort of saw a man who was, even a, even when he passed away, like, you know, he was a very physically strong man, you know, mentally very strong. But he'd given his body, he basically had one knee replacement he was waiting for another knee replacement. So he'd given his body for farming. And and he almost, like, it was actually quite scary thinking, if he can't do it, like, how could anyone else ever do it? Like, no one could work harder than him. Um so I still say one memory, and I, I, sometimes I cry when I say this, but like, our farm is basically 100 meters from the graveyard. And when the morning he, when he passed away, I went up there about 5 a.m., cried my heart, you know, when I saw his coughing, cried my eyes out. And I was like, all he ever did really was he would farm, <laughs> he would milk cows, spend a lot of time making sure the drainage ditches were clear so that all the water could come off and go in the wood. Um And he then used to go once a week to Hosley Market, which is just a very small town, you know, so every Wednesday he'd go there. And that was his life. But then when he died, we, well, I was one of the coffin bearers, so we had to walk up. I'd done my crying, really, and I thought, well, I'm just going to be, you know, put a brave face. And I walked up and literally there were like 2,000 people waiting. It was just insane. And it was like... It was like this man, all such a simple life, but was so well was on that but just so well respected, and it was that was that just hit me like, you know, just just to, you know, I always laugh at myself now because I've got Instagram followers and do all sorts of things, but I'd, I'd probably have about twenty people turn up to, my funeral. <laughs> like it's it's, 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 it's incredible. Yeah, like, what
0: can we learn about that? I think there's something very deep. Yeah. That really deep. Do, don't really, understand yeah. on, on stewarding the land. I think stewarding might be the right word. It might be fancy words that I. Yeah. Know. But like that that even of course he was forced in a system and blocked in a system and he did like probably the max he could possibly yeah, do in yeah, the conditions absolutely. and saw the writing on the yeah, wall. But yeah. there was no chance to to change. Yeah, um, or there was a chance to change, but to move yeah. like move I, with he, the system.
1: It's, it's, if he, he, if he was younger or if we had a bigger farm. The only way you could change, it seems like dirty water systems came, You know, it's all good stuff, you know, that you had to basically collect all your, you know, um all the waste in the cattle. You had to store is and this would have cost tens of thousands of pounds. So it was a time when either the small dairy farm went out of business or very ambitious younger people started buying up farms, you know, so that's there was the beginning of, you know, and I think... Intensification yeah, of... Yeah. So if he'd been a younger man, he would have done it, you know, like if he'd been the next generation, he would he'd Probably you know we probably have eight hundred cows all feeding inside. <laughs> you know, we're actually or there. it Or if he would be yeah. young now, he would yeah. be on YouTube learning about <laughs> no, the latest think, grazing I stuff. Yeah, I don't think he ever would have gone on. YouTube. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's like, I do think that. If he was twenty now, maybe yeah. I mean he yeah, would be
0: learning. I mean, that, yeah. I think that's that
1: entrepreneurial spirit is. Yeah, and that, that's, you're right. I think
0: he probably I, would have pushed the yeah. boundaries. Now oh, the I'm, I'm imagining find,
1: the bit I find really interesting is because I've now come along. Probably talk more about it, but. I'm totally changing the way you know, I've gone from what he's done. I'm now unpacking all that and changing it. Um, but I think his his name is gang well after John Knight was his name, but his his um they both his dad and his name are both gang. That's so I know him as like gang. But they must have his granddad must or his dad must have farmed in a way that was just with nature, you know, like it would have been the way I'm trying to do it now. They must have had such debates about you know, they, when they, he brought in yeah, the, the ditches and yeah, the, cow, the different but, cow breeds. And the bit, it must have
0: been as big as now. like you, Huge. Like yeah, and the, bit, the discussion would have been yeah, but exactly dif- similar.
1: But yeah. The difference is is that I'm sure they would have had arguments, but they would have applied the land, they would have planted the ryegrass, they would have put the chemical fertilizer, and it must have exploded. It must have seemed like a miracle. It must have just seemed like, you know, it just would have, you know, like – So I I finished any discussion. It probably would have like, look, it works within one year. I guarantee within one year, it'd just be like, and all the neighbors must have been like, you know, like it's just like. So just, It's a trap because yeah. if you
0: don't do it yeah. then, and your na- all your neighbors do yeah. and they double or whatever the uh, they, the X is in that like uh, the multiplier is their production and, and suddenly you see new roofs on their yeah. houses and, and yeah. all of that yeah. new cars on yeah. or cars yeah. and their yeah. stuff like, yeah. like the pressure to go on with that, yeah. even though maybe deep down, you know, you see some effects yeah. that in yeah. a couple of years start to like, you have to keep adding more and more, yeah. but it's a, it's yeah. a mousetrap. It keeps yeah. going faster and faster. Like that wheel that's spinning yeah. wheel. And that's the tricky part. Like, how do we get off that? Because if you don't do it, somebody else does, and yeah. you still have the same commodity contract. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You're yeah. stuck. Yeah. But it's, um, I mean, it's, I think James Rebank, I don't know if you, you know, he's a fantastic guy who I do follow a lot. And his book, you know, he, he you know, these, these... I didn't read it yet. I really have yeah, to. It's just, it keeps um, coming up. Yeah. I mean, it, for me, it's brilliant because it's he sort of says his granddad, his dad was a bit like my granddad, where, you know, he did the transformation, but his granddad before... Would literally sit there and watch the farm and watch wildlife and watch the animals for like two or three hours a day and like because I do that. I, he actually said that's that should be classed as working. My mum's of a generation where she she's like work 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 and like she was sort of say, where are you at the moment I said I'm working in the wood and she'll say are you are you sitting on a chair? And I say yes I am. It's kind, but it is thinking that, is working. I think it it's is. I, I really do think. I mean. We'll
0: probably talk I, I hope that we can move farming or managing the land from this extremely physical, like you mentioned with your, your grandfather, like that work that you need to work 10, 12 hours a day yeah. physically, constantly to yeah. partly it's never going to be non-physical. I, I yeah. of course, I completely understand it, but it's also much more, let's say knowledge and it's very knowledge intensive, but that farmers have more time to use all that knowledge and all the yeah. observations that are happening and to actually do something with it, which means you cannot be running around 12 hours a day because then you don't have the time to yeah. to actually observe or to process the observing. You do the observing, yeah. but you don't process. So I think that down, not even downtime makes it sound very bad, but like observing, thinking, hands off and yeah. seeing, I mean, of course we all say, oh, let nature do the work, etc., yeah. etc. but it does allow
1: yeah. you I mean, to have more I thinking would say, time. i to go back to answer your question, but I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to it. First. Because the way I've, create the market and the guaranteed market. I, I would say there's there's probably not a farm... Mentioning in that UK.
0: just like this. We're going to unpack that, yeah. listeners, don't worry. Okay. Guaranteed okay. market is an interesting thing to unpack, yeah. don't worry.
1: Yeah, yeah. So i probably spend more time sitting on my ass watching than any the farm in the UK because because I've got a guaranteed profit from what I do. You know, I, I know I'm going to make money. So I already I, see a title for this interview,
0: The Laziest farm <laughs> of the <UK." laughs> Farmer of the UK. We need to do a bit of clickbait, otherwise people don't click on I do, interviews. I always yeah.
1: say that... Um, i'm probably too lazy and not clever enough to farm against nature i need it on my side i think and i always say when you've got ruminants you're farming with nature as soon as you remove ruminants nature just wants to try and kick your ass so i'm like you know rather than fight nature i'm like you know let's just let's, let's let's get it on my side so yeah i would possibly say- that's a very i i love that quote
0: i'm too lazy to farm against <laughs> nature it's uh but let's, okay, let's start unpacking the market piece a bit. Yeah, I mean, if
1: we, I go we're, back we're to, good. if I go back to, um, so my nan died, absolutely loved her a bit, spent about six months with her at the end and it wasn't a particularly nice six months but I then started really reflecting on like guilt really of what I felt about my granddad and also like how could I try and, I basically decided I made like three promises to her, one to myself but invariably what it was was that I'm going to, I'm going to somehow come back and make this farm Um. But to do that, you know, I've done, I've done loads of, you know, I've had a lot of stupid ideas in my time. But for some reason, the smartest idea I ever had was, basically, I can't farm. And I'm never, my granddad failed because of outside forces. And if I fail, I wanted to be my folk. So I decided then I needed to get a guaranteed market for what I was going to produce. And at that time, I thought it was going to be beef, beef cattle. So I knew I had to find a way of finding a market for that. You know, and I, to do that, I, I, approached my local butcher, who's, they're very, you know, in a humble part of the world, but they are, they're probably the UK's best butcher. So I approached them and said, I'll go to London. That's a,
0: that's a lucky, lucky break that you have the, well, one of the it's, best it's, butchers yeah, in the UK yeah, close to you, yeah. or did he, that be, he became with you? One yeah, of the well, best we didn't, butchers. we didn't
1: realize at the time, everyone locally, so we come from a place called Launceston, where I was born in Cornwall. And we just grew up with Philip Warren Butcher, and he was actually, you know, same age as my mum, or probably a bit younger. Um, and like our population of our town is about 5,000 and the Warrens they have a retail shop where they have 7,000 customers a week <laughs> like it's so it's and we just grew up with them and in our heads we're thinking every town must have a butcher like this you know we and we just so, and, got so used to it yeah, yeah we didn't have a reference to know how good they were but but what and they you did you did when
0: you went to London I'm imagining but I, I you, didn't, you... we
1: didn't know like we didn't know we um you know so I basically approached them and said that I know London um, I want to farm one day, but I'm going to, if you want me to, I'm going to help you create a market in London. And I didn't know anything about far- farming. Ah, so or- you didn't
0: start the farming piece. You started finding yeah. your market in yeah. London, so finding your distribution have, yeah. channel through the butcher. Yeah. And, and, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, it was, that's be working, honest, working backwards, which is yeah. fundamental. I mean,
1: it was, it was the first sort of, to be honest, I look back and it is actually, that was, I don't know, genius. It's like, it was just such a, it just seems so obvious to me. That's what I had. It because I saw my granddad, it was, I was just so entrenched that I'm not, I'm going to have my own guaranteed market. I'm never going to let someone else dictate my price. Um, so when I approached Philip Warren, his son Ian actually was looking to take over the family business. And I think, I don't want to speak too much for them, but i you know, hopefully they're okay with this. But Ian had just tried to go back into his family business. His dad could not have made it any bigger or better. I think he, Philip Warren actually said to his son Ian, like you can come into the business, but I don't see how we can make it better. Like we've already got every single customer, you know. So I came, just, everybody can
0: drive an hour like we got, yeah, like they're yeah. here. Yeah, how, can good we, yeah.
1: how can we? And, um, so I came along that time and said to, and she was such, I you mean, know, it was fluky timing. I said, Look, I'll do this London thing. He had jumped on it. And then I just went up to London and, you know, started trying to build, you know, just basically finding up chefs and we found really crazy ways of getting, cause at Cornwall, we've got our topography is such that, you know, it's wet and, you know, we grow more grass for longer in the season than anywhere else. So if you, if you believe that grass fed ruminants is the best, then we, you know, we should be the best really. Um But obviously it's, we're 240 miles from London. So that's the issue is getting code stuff up to there. Um, so it took about a year and a half. And hour. enough
0: of a boat, enough yeah. of a. Because you're not going to drive with yeah. a little micro van with, with a few people. I did. Kilos. I did, I did <laughs> at the beginning, for I sure. Did, but you know, like, that's did, not.
1: I did for two weeks. I drove I drove up to down three times a week. And quite literally, on the last winter, I was driving back down again. And I literally yes. fell asleep at the wheel. And I was like, I suddenly woke up and I thought, oh, that's bad. And I was like, well, gonna this play. could have been the end of the road. Yeah, war, but I'm going to pull over the next service. And then before I did that, I fell asleep again. And I was like, so then I pulled over and I thought, like, right, we need a different. Like this, this isn't the best. This was, um, and then I it's very sustainable. Yeah. yeah, but then we moved up to London, and then, um and then what we did was we found uh, we actually jumped on the back of the fish system. So there's there's fish going up and down, from, you know, to to London like a central hub. So we basically just put everything on the fish lorry. I'd go to the middle of nowhere at 4 a.m. in the morning and then deliver. I mean, it was, you know, but I, I basically delivered a van for seven years. And then I was up there for 10 years and, you know, it, it started, you know, small, but, you know, within 10 years. I mean, what I became very good at was we didn't want to step on other people's toes. And there were always, you know, I always sort of call the, the big white chefs, like all the, you know, if you know the UK, there's, there's quite a lot of angry white chefs of a certain era. Um And we realized that we came at a time when a lot of people... A lot of chefs who've been to Noma, young chefs, and they weren't like the, the cocaine, like boosted. They were, they were very serious young people. Um, and, they'd been and they have been And they needed chefs.
0: serious suppliers. Yeah. What's that? They needed serious, serious yeah, suppliers they, equally. What yeah. about yeah. six of
1: them all went to Noma? And they all came back and they realized it was all about wow. the impact
0: of Noma. I think we're going to look back yeah. at, at like a, yeah. as a, as a breeding ground, not yeah. just on the fermentation side, because yeah. they have an amazing fermentation lab, but also just on, on training, like well, mentally I, training a whole generation of chefs. Well, I do have issues with Noma because I have been there, but anyway, that's, but never been, I have no you know, clue, but it's, 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 it's interesting. interesting. You know, they, how
1: they must be the most influential. They must have influenced more people than yet. So there's no doubt. There's no doubt. So I'm not going to be next to this. So these chefs all came back. Influence can be good or bad. I'm not yeah. saying it's. Uh, I think the influence, influence on chefs was great, but like, anyways, yeah, it it's more. Anyway, I, I won't, I won't. But so there were a number of chefs. So we had a chap called Isaac McHale, James Lowe, um, you know, just about five or six chefs that came back.
0: How did you find it? Because you were in publishing. Wasn't it that you were um, regular? Were you regular at the restaurants? Or no, you no, 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 to no, no,
1: honestly, not, I didn't find even go somebody at the street at and
0: you went with your meat. Like, can you please no, taste my meat? I like, just, how does that work?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I think like, Cause I, when I was in London publishing, I didn't even go to a restaurant. You know, I was just into drinking to be honest. So, so when I went You had your
0: calories somewhere else. Was,
1: yeah. yeah. So it was like, I just wasn't. And then when I came back to Cornwall, I just, I, honestly, I look back in that and I don't know, I don't know how it happened really. Like something inside me was like, I made this process to the van and I'm like, I've got to make this happen. You're almost running on, I suppose instinct really. Like there's something inside, there's something like, yeah, there was no logic. It was like, right, no, I'm going to do this and that and that. And that, it's hard to explain, but I'm glad it, I'm glad it went like it did. Um, so yeah, I, I literally, I remember I phoned there's a restaurant, I don't know if it was, um, Chuckle Barco POI, very famous British chef, and he used to own a restaurant called Harvey's. Um, he, then that was taken over and it was actually called a restaurant called Chez Bruce. So it's one of the, so I literally phoned up the share head chef, a chap called Matt Christmas. My first ever phone call to a chef was, I just looked it up and said, oh, that, that's the sort of place you want to spice. Literally what happened guy and said, "Look, in this match up, we we're going to work on behalf of Portugal, Philip Warren. Um, we're, we're going to look to send Cornish meat to London. We're not sure how good it is, um, but you know, would you like to give it a try?" That's not a very really good sales pitch. Cool, he literally said, "Mate, you sound like an absolute idiot," <laughs> like you did literally. But you know, we'll, we'll give it a try. So we went in, and then it was it was good. You know, and for a year and a half, he was pretty well a customer, but he was buying Hobib and it was that kept us going. And then. And then what happened is no no chefs came back and they wanted to know where the meat was coming from. They heard that we were able to do that because the beauty of Philip Warren, um, what made them so special was in the UK, when I, like, it was the same thing for my granddad. It was suddenly the supermarkets came and they wanted really high-protein animals that had no fat because that's how they're going to make money. So suddenly the UK... You know, we had all these beautiful native breeds of animals like the North Devon, like the Hereford, and suddenly Limousin and you know Charolais came in. And Philip Warren basically went to all his farmers and said that if you've got the land for those animals, do it because you are going to make more money. But if your land is wet and you know you're, you are going to struggle, so what I'll do is if you if you haven't got the right land for these big ones, keep doing the traditional breeds. And we'll pay you smaller,
0: lighter, yeah, more so, that Yeah, time.
1: but just more like able to get fat on the type of pasture we've got. He said, if you do that, we'll pay you a premium. To turn grass into something useful. That's the whole. But he's, <laughs> you know, he, he is a true genius for the wine. You know, just such a, you know, he came from a very humble beginning. He bought a butcher shop and, but he, he said to his farmers, I will pay you a premium. You keep on doing what you're doing. And we'll pay you a premium. So. And I think for a long time, you know, the trend was for lean animals. In and, you know, his butchery shop, he just had all this, like, beautiful, you know, we've fish, you call it... No free. fat. Yeah, yeah no, we had these native animals all fat, yeah. you know. And then what was amazing... But then was, there came this generation of chefs that wanted that. Yeah. They were so looking we, for... So I think Luckily, yeah, yeah. Imagine if he said Philip One it must be really interesting, because he, he was going against everything. And obviously, they were making... They also did dry aging. So that, A, they were having animals that are fat, they have got a lot of waste also dry aging which means you're losing moisture but he stuck with his guns and he just kept on doing it because he knew it was right and then we came along with these chefs and basically these chefs were like this is exactly what we want so it was you know is it was a really it was almost like you have to wait 20 years and suddenly so word just spread that you know if you get to know you me, had this meat that was impossible yeah. to find and what we then did else. was yeah. we started bringing there's a chap called tom adams um in, he, to this day, is my favorite restaurant, restaurant called PitQ. It was the beginning of like, the street food thing. Tom had spent a lot of time in the U.S., came back, started the coolest restaurant ever called PitQ. He was like 22 at the time. Like, what is it called? You. P-I-T-T-C-U-E.
0: Do you want to learn how to invest, or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below.
1: Perfect. I'll put a link below as well. And so he started that and he was 22. He started doing like a street food thing under the South Bank in London. It just went crazy. He heard what I was doing, met me. And he literally asked me three questions you know I couldn't answer. And like, I was better to be like a middleman, but luckily, because I'm probably the worst middle. Like if you're a middleman, you better keep people apart. And you know, you don't want your butcher talking to the chef. You know, you want to keep all the... So I, I said to Tom, well, I can't answer those. I'll tell you what you do. Let's jump in the van for the weekend. We'll pop down to my butcher and you can go meet him. And then he came down. It was the first time we brought a chef down. And as soon as they met, like two obsessed people, one obsessed, you know, like it, you could just see like this is absolutely. fireworks. It was just literally like it was to be, and actually, what's was funny? I actually do a food photographer. He actually came along the trip with us, so it's all there on camera somewhere. Like, I mean, just a little thing like so. For, for shape Bruce, we were doing whole rib taking off the bone. So Tom Adams came in. This is absolutely true story. He's watching this happen, and we're you know taking it off, and then we've got the, the you know the, the bone, the rib cage. And Tom says, "What you doing that?" And they said, "Well, we." Trim it, take that out for pasties, and then we have to chuck the bones. And the bones we actually pay to get them, you know, sent for waste. And Tom said, "Well, why don't I, if you just cut it along the time, I'll take that, and then I'll, you know." So he ended up paying eighty pence a kilo for something that was costing us money. But then he was, he then became a very famous dish, you know, like river on the bone there, and they were charged with eight quid a portion. You know, like it was just when you saw this happen, like right. So we're we're not we're like, we're saving money. You're making money. It was just brilliant. So. So then, it became a bit of a all these ambitious chefs because I was doing all the deliveries. I was getting up at four a.m. in the morning, meeting all the chefs in the morning, being a bit of a gossiper, to be honest, getting quite well known for that. But then it became a bit of a thing like if you want to get this meat, get to know Matt, and then he'll take you down to Cornwall, and then you can meet everyone. And it and it suddenly became this like tour agency, yeah. Well, yeah, like, organizing like, trips uh, or a club. It just became a club, and and everybody who was, and you just knew. And was there enough meat? Like this, was, I mean.
0: Was yeah. there, like, did this mean that suddenly your butcher, it was, like, having to seek other people or was there enough supply or what, what happened know, there?
1: The, the supply is never, ever an issue. Um, the thing is, with butchery, you just need to, supply is not an issue. Like in Cornwall and Devon, on the border, there's just so many, fantastic, you know, we've got a problem or, You know, What you've got is a system where you can, animals can be born on the moors and they become, you know, born in a really healthy environment and we bring them down and get them fat on, like, very fertile River Tamor Valley. So and because Philip Warren had got all these farmers to do what they were doing, we had just all this but the issue was more it's just balancing carcass. That's always been the issue is if you I think Philip Warren is, you know, says, you know, one of those phrases is like you lose money on the bits. Like, you know, anybody can make money on the you know the loins and the that sort of, of thing, right? But you need to be able to balance it. So that was the that became my job then was to find customers who would not only by the, the meat, less but, yeah. desirable yeah. quote-unquote pieces but then actually, and those no, are chefs i mean
0: chefs can play with that can do amazing things yeah. with waste which you just mentioned but actually, it's something you have to pay for it to get rid of yeah they turn it into a dish.
1: Yeah. but then there's if you look back on twitter i remember because we were looking to grow but we just needed to be able to get rid of the you know the offcuts. And literally, a, a company, a guy just put it saw on Twitter saying that we're looking to start a burger company in Cornwall called Hubox. They were going to get a sea container and make a burger thing. Um, I, and they said, that we're looking for mince in Cornwall." So I just saw it, put them in touch with me and Warren, and now they've literally got like twenty burger places around the Southwest. So as we've grown, they have. So they literally take all of the thing, the offcuts, turn it into so that. And now that you know, just things, like, it's just crazy. <laughs> so. Um, and, and you could have been doing this for and you are
0: for a long time what made you decide i mean of course you promised it to your grandmother but to to get your hands into farming the farming yeah. as well not just because you probably saved actually quite a lot of farms by selling these these pieces into, yeah, into helps, London for good prices helps,
1: yeah well helped a lot but also probably just made them like feel really good because like you know at some point we started selling the Howard's and like in Cornwall. Well, we were saying to a place called Lebery, which is just, you know, I could see certainly at that stage, was recognized as being the best restaurant in the UK. But obviously in Cornwall, cool. no one knew that was quite the idea. But then we started supplying Harris. And then suddenly, like, it was it actually just gave huge, you know, you go back there, and that was when it was like, you know, the Warren supply Harris, like, you know, the same meat that you're having, you know, in the counter, you know, like you're having, like, you know, the Yeah, yeah. the, 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 the urban,
0: rural, yeah. suddenly there was a huge amount of pride. Yeah,
1: yeah it was. You a know, and suddenly it was like, oh, you know, um, so sorry, what was your question? <laughs> I jumped on. Why farming again? You Why far, farming? Well, again. My,
0: Why farming for you? So I sort of um,
1: you created speak, the market. Let's I be, let's up, be you, clear, like you, the market was there. Yeah. I yeah, then, I'll be honest. I then I got fairly did the van for seven years, and it was actually very mentally and physically very very taxing. The last couple of years of the van, you know, you're on your own a lot, and it was, and I felt never further away from. What I actually wanted to do. So, on the face of it, yeah, you know, we were getting quite popular, becoming quite social, knowing lots of chefs and sommeliers, you know, becoming a bit of a face on London. So I managed to win, you know, yeah, became quite well known for what I was doing. So, I, by like the YBS Young British Food, he's doing award, like an honorary title. And then I was called, I think, Maverick at the restaurant industry. I was still driving a van. I, I sort of laugh because at one point, the Evening Standard in London do a, like, the most influential 1,000 people in London. And I actually managed to get on it whilst I was still driving a van. So I sort of say I was probably one of London's most influential ever van drivers. But I then, it's um, part of the thing, I started taking over kitchens and getting chefs to do pop-ups and things. And then I ended up um taking over a pub in a very cool part of East London. And we just, you know, this is actually where I started doing the map actually, but it just went mental. Like So we called it the Cornwall Project. The whole idea was, you know, yes. by, by supporting I said, we're giving London very high produce, high quality produce. We're going to support local quality economy. We took over this very, this pub and it just went mental it just became like a huge thing. And the guy who owned the pub then basically we worked, started working together. We actually got us a very cool pub in Fitch in central London. So I took it over and I then basically became a landlord for two years. Um, and I would say possibly very good at keeping people happy and entertained, but. The actual running of a pub, not so great. But we actually managed to get it in our first year. So it was a pub and restaurant. It was tiny. We got a big one, which you know I'd had chef mates for ten years who never got one. I became you know, and we like Fame Asher, famous, um, uh, the famous Evening Standard Review. gave us like four out of five. You know, we, it was it was quite a weird. It was a thing. Yeah, yeah, but I'd never felt further away from it. And after two years, actually, me and my business partner fell out. Um, and then the weirdest thing then. This is where it all sort of happened because at that time I had two hours on the face of it. I was doing fantastically well doing all, you know, being talked about by the press and all this, but I've never actually been as unhappy. And when I say unhappy, I was really like, you know, probably suffering depression because I just never, I just didn't feel connected to Cornwall and It all felt a bit stupid. Um, then I basically ended up a mate of mine had a houseboat in Shoreditch. So I ended up basically leaving the pub, living on a houseboat for two years. And that's when it all started happening. And one of the funny stories I always say is, I've lived there for two years and I'd walk around and every morning, like, it was a beautiful bit of London, like, it was all urban, but there was just so many bits of wildlife. And every day, like, there you were know, like grey mullet would come up on the estuary and you'd be able to see them and there'd be coots and swans and like just all sorts. And I'd go out every morning just naturally looking at you know, like how, you know, how the ducks doing. They've had six chicks and they all right, you know, the Egyptian geese, how they doing. And in my head, I was just every morning just going around looking at everything. And then we had like a meeting of the boat people, like, and I just sort of said, you know, It just became obvious that no one else was interested in what all these animals were. But then I suddenly realized I'm basically doing what I was doing in farming. I'm going out every morning checking all the animals were all right. But at that stage, I then, because it started getting into nature again, and then I just started, I suppose it corrects us. I could see it suddenly became very apparent that all the work we've done, you started hearing about plant-based food, the vegan movement. Um, You started hearing about rewilding. And the environmental aspects of cattle. And I suddenly realized that shit, all this work we've done, perhaps it's for nothing. Perhaps we are doing bad. I then happened, I watched a YouTube video by Alan Savory, which I think is a lot of people, you know, quite a contentious figure, but, and obviously his idea was actually not, not, not in our crowd, I think. (laughs) No, I think, yeah, exactly. Um, so I watched the talk, I watched the famous TED talk and basically it was, we don't, you know, we'll actually probably need more ruminants if we're going to save the planet. And I'm like, well, that sounds too good to be true. But, you know, if, if you say, if something sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. I then just went, that's when it really started. So I basically then started watching YouTube probably for like 12 hours a day for like two years and just suddenly got obsessed with Regen Ag. But also I, I got very obsessed with like identity politics and what I could see in America. I was worried that seeing what's happening in America, identity politics, I could see it linking with the, you know, vegan movement. I could see these movements in London. I just became really, I basically, I remember like, in this country, Brexit happened and Trump got in and I had the pub at the time and I was just totally oblivious and suddenly I was like, I've got myself really stupid. I've been doing all this fan driving and doing this. I'm, I've got, I'm dumb. I need to get smart like quick. So that's so basically, it was two-year period of just so much information on a houseboat watching yeah. YouTube and yeah, and to and understand people, you know, farming. They probably thought yeah. I did. Mean, was like, "Why?" They probably thought like I was I was on heroin or doing something terrible. Like that guy just always seems to be in his houseboat. We don't see it. But I was just in there, literally just watching you. And if I saw an interesting farm, I'd go and see them. So I visited at the time quite a few farmers in the UK, and then but. The biggest moment. Ah, so you
0: were not completely solitary in the house. No, yes, you, so, yeah, no yeah. you went, you went yeah. to visit Blackley. Yeah, I had that's to go probably to see all the chefs. So I
1: was still yeah. working the wines. I was yeah. still looking at chefs. I was in my houseboat. And then, you know, but one bit, the amazing bit, I've always felt that hamon is the best meat in the world. You know, the Abirica pigs from ex And I got an invitation, you know, from my widow of things to go and speak, to go and meet, you know, some Abirica farmers. And I think it was happened upon. I, they're basically the best hamon supplies in, in the world. And I spent – I went there and spent, like, a week with them. And I just realized, like, it was a real epiphany of how do you get the best meat in the world? And then I was suddenly, like, actually – to get a world-class animal meat, you now have walked around a long time. So the Ibirico pigs, for a year and a half, they're actually foraging for a living. They're, like, trying to, you know, find all sorts of stuff. It's very dry conditions. They're actually – yeah, you know, so for after a year and a half, they literally weigh eighty kilo. They're really thin, and then they put them in the acorn trees, and within four months, they literally double their weight. So to get, a lot of muscle at the beginning, yeah. So they, yeah, not been, a lot yeah, of fat, and then that, yeah. and then suddenly fat. So to get world class meat, you need an animal that's walked around a huge amount of its life, and then it the hasn't been inside. Yeah, no. then you need to put a fat <laughs> cover on the end, and obviously. And I, I, that was like a because we've done mutton frequently when I was at the pub like three years before. And it was just incredible. I just suddenly hit me. This is the reason that's incredible. I suddenly realized no animal in the world, well, any dead domesticated animal has walked further than sheep do. And sheep get to a certain that, you know, once they're ready to be killed, they've walked. Like, God knows. So then it was like, let's just get those animals and put fat on it. Surely, but I knew a lot by then about aging of meat and the processes. So it was just like, right, actually... I think I've got an idea to go back to call. I'm going to call mum. So I called mum and like, right, I want to come back. Mum had a lot of issues. My stepdad, you know, they're actually going to be getting a divorce next week. But he, they were losing. They sort of taken over the farm and they were just losing loads of money and it was just a disaster. So I came in and said, right, I've got this idea. I want to basically buy, buy 80 old oh sheep, get them fat and see what happens. And so bless mum, you know, she gave me the chance really and we did it. Um, and it was a real hunch and I remember going to Philip Warren at the time. What did he say? Philip Warren, right. Honestly, the number of ideas, Ian and Philip Warren, are just they're two, like father and son. You know, Ian's learned so much from his dad, but they are just so astute businessmen and they just know instantly whether an idea is good or not. They just know, you know. And over the 10 years I knew them, I told so many ideas. And he just used to look at me like, hey, just, this is why it won't work. And I'm like, i the same with Philip Warren. So I went to Philip Warren, so I've got this idea of basically fattening old sheep. He went literally, Matt. That's a brilliant idea, and I was just like, "What?" And that's it, the first time you ever said yeah, that. Yeah, it was <laughs> like, and I was just like, and he said the main risk of the idea is because you're you've got an animal a long way, you're going to put fat on it. But he said the real clever bit is sheep produce something called lanolin, which is basically producing the gland and it waterproofs their skin. But when you eat lamb, that tacky flavour that that's actually lanolin. After about six or seven years old, sheep stop producing it or li- produce very little, so there's no tackiness. So he said by that age people will be expecting it to be tough and tacky, but if you can age it, dry age it, it'll be tender, and there'll be no tackiness. So it'll just be the exact opposite of what you're expecting. And as soon as I had that, I'm like, shit, that's, a, you know, okay. And then my next piece of luck was just before, this is like three and a half years ago, I went to something called the Oxford Real Pharma Conference, again, because of my learning. It was literally four months before I started. And I was still then like, I've heard about his regen ag stuff, but I'm, I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to have to, Use fertilizer, you have to do this, you know, and I just didn't know how to do it. And so I went and met a chap called Chris Jones, who's very into the old beaver thing in the UK. he's There's a bit of a secret beaver club going on in the UK. I think I think
0: i, think so. I, I, think I listened to a book. I, did he write
1: a book? I'm no, there's a, a chap called not?
0: Derek Gow, who I'm actually quite probably mentioned. I, I recognize the name. So Derek Gow wouldn't be about Chris Jones
1: a lot, you know, yeah, like yeah, sure. Chris Jones, but he's just a beautiful, incredible man. And I saw him, I went to a talk on, basically, I went to the Real Farm like Conference. How to fatten them without all the inputs yeah, in that, was, the old was, way. Um, yeah. So I went to Oxford Real Farm Conference thinking I was going to take a farm, but it's thinking I just don't know how to farm. And I happened upon a talk by a chap called Steve Gabriel, and he's farms in upstate New York. And he was basically, came from a conservation environmental background a bit like me. Um, and then he had sheep in upstate New York. They had a horrific drought everyone's sheep and cattle were struggling and he was really struggling. He then just thought like, I'm gonna, I've got a wood. I'm just going to put the sheep in the woods. And then two months later, they came out looking like, I sort of say like rock stars, I was like, and he was like, so then he's gone really deep. into so, so he talked about silver pasture and he talked about it very much as a trait resistance, you know? So when I then, which is funny for you in a place where it's wetter than anywhere
0: else. Yeah, yeah but, but, it is, but of course it's, yeah, no longer anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, I, I mean, it was just such a good time, to be honest, that, you know, you, all these things happen by chance. But I, um, he, yes, I saw this. And then afterwards, there was a question and answers. And actually, Chris Jones from Cornwall was I didn't know Chris, but I heard him talk. It was so lovely because this Steve Gabriel was like the most gentle, gentle-spoken man he ever had. And Chris Jones just started swearing and just so charismatic. And I'm like, I've got to meet that man. So I went down and met him. And it was, honestly, it was the, the most inspirational words I ever heard. It's changed my life, really. He went, Matt, I'm not going to waste your time, and I, I certainly don't want you to waste my mind. do you want me to sum up everything I've learned in 50 years of farming in one sentence? And I'm like, okay. Of course. And he said, if you farm for nature, flavor looks after itself. And to me, because I knew a lot about nature, and I was I was very unique in farming when I was starting with flavor. I, I, I was so used to delivering meat to chefs and tasting it, you know. That, to me, was like... I can do that? Like, actually, and ever since then, I met some of my best mates. Like, and, you know, we grew up together, still mates after 40 years, and they've all actually been all comprehensive kids, you know, no fancy background, but they've all gone off and done really well in their own field. And we all met up about three months ago, and they all said, even though they're very successful, they still actually, like, they've got imposter syndrome. They just don't feel like, how am I there? And when I was doing a restaurant, even though I've big one on this, I felt like I was an imposter. But since when Chris Jones said those words, I've never ever, all I've ever felt is I can do this. Like, I, I can, you know, like it was just a, I can do this. now. like, and I've never looked back to be honest. It was, it was, if I hadn't heard those words, I don't know. Yeah. But then I went back to family farm. I was, we had a small home in Cornwall. I was able to do a bit of sheep there. You know, my, but my stepdad was being really, really, you know, pretty nasty actually. He was really trying to make me not do this. So I went to the actual family farm. But my stepdad was farming all the land absolutely horrifically, terribly. But we had this, well, so we had this, I don't know, (laughs) we haven't even asked me questions, I'll just go for it. But basically, I've seen this talk by Steve um, and by um, Steve Gabriel. And we, when we grow, so obviously all my granddad, he basically plowed the land, drained it, but that water had to go somewhere. So basically it went into our ancient woodland. And so and then you remembered the, the, the talk at the
0: conference. Yeah. So, like, hey, well, yeah, yeah.
1: so when I, when we were growing up, so it basically. All the water went in there for 40 years. So when we grew up, we literally weren't allowed in there because cattle would go in there and actually get chest deep in mud and you know, like it was so, so one nan, it was a very strong character. Like she just you never allowed to go in there. Anyway, when I came back to the farm, I was really upset because I, I just see my stepdad do this horrific stuff. I then thought well, I was just going to go and walk in the woods, and obviously I went in there with my nan and my ears, You know, she'd been passed away like ten years, but like you know, you basically went in there with like yeah, did, things around honestly, your waist was, just was, to be just was, to be I was, ready. I literally I was just like any moment I'm going to die. And then I was suddenly walking around. I'm like, this is ancient coppice. Like this is like I just thought this is like you know this, this is we used to farm this. Like this is this used to be managed. Obviously, you know that had been a few hundred years ago. But you could just tell. So I went to mum and said, look, mum." I know I'm not allowed to farm the fields, but can I go in the wood? Farm the forest. Yeah. Mum was like, do whatever you want. And that was, that was my chance. So it just gave me that in. And it was you, know, all these things that happened. And then, so then I just basically <laughs> for one, yeah, for the first winter and it was bloody tough. It's like mud and I've never even used a chainsaw. I've started chopping down trees and, um, but it was the absolute making, of it. you know, that it's all those weird things. And now I, I you know, what I'm probably most well known for now. And to be honest, I've been quite um, – I have not be doing it three years, but I'll be quite cocky. But I've just literally been interviewed this week for UK Sheep Farm of the Year. So it's just after three years, it's pretty quite crazy. But I think what I'm really well known for, A, is putting mutton back on the map and making London restaurants, you know, high end. But I suppose what I'm really well known for, if I am really, is basically going to Woodland and accomplishing it and basically showing what can happen if you add – ruminants to a woodland an ancient woodland you know like and it's yeah it's just been making me really
0: yeah what's so what's the change if you would like that first time you walked into that into the woodland and and just try to make it visually obviously because we're in an an audio podcast yeah like and if you would go into that same if you're still farming that what's really interesting how different is it like how how does it feel smell sounds what's
1: what's really interesting is my uncle lanty own like a half acre bit so we've left that that's totally like it was and next year we have a bit which I've done. So when you go in there now, right? Even now, it's basically all the canopy is totally full. It's totally full. So no light at all is getting into that canopy floor. Um, you can't hear any birds. Um, you the, in the piece comes, that you left. Yeah, just in the piece you left that, this is this is the control. This is yeah, the control side. Control yeah. area. Leaves are still there from last year. So even though the wow. leaves fell, eight. So after nine months, the leaves are still there. So that. So basically to me, and there's literally, I work quite closely with guys from the Eden Project. I don't know if you know about the Eden Project Mm -hmm. in Cornwall. There's a guy there obsessed with plants who comes and actually measures everything I'm doing.
0: So just summarizing, there's almost like no life. There's no life. So basically it's dead and
1: there's literally six plants coming out of the floor. There's wood soil, there's ivy, and there's a few other things, but that's it. So basically you go in there. I think to the UK, you would think that's like your perfect, beautiful woodland, but it's just dead. There's nothing, like it's dead. So now... Where I've now gone into my bit, all I've done is coppiced a few trees in it, you know, the hazel, the willow, silver batch, it all comes back, <laughs> coppiced it. I've then put in sheep where I think it's right. If you go in there in May, and it's all on video, like it's all on my YouTube, but also, um, uh, the BBC actually came to film it the first time I ever put sheep in three years ago. If you go in there now, especially in May, there's literally 160 plants from the seabed have come up. It's now probably one of the most, like, productive bits of land probably in the uk like and you've got trees coming up coppice they eat those they eat the grass and and it grows yeah. like the fields where i'm a Devonish, just so for farming i think if you get depression you get like your, you know like mental health issues it's because nothing's growing so in the winter towards that last like march and april like nothing's growing and like but it, the woodland starts growing in like mid Feb. Like spring happens like six weeks earlier, and it's starting you're just like, and it just comes alive. And all it is is, and this is all from the sea bank. So seeds can probably last in the sea bank. Nothing planted. It's Nothing just been there yeah, for forty the years. It's, so it's you go to one bit, it's dead. You go to the next bit, and it's like you cannot. And all I've done is coppice, put it in light, and then put in sheet when I think it's right. Pull them out, and it's just night and day. And like it's just. Yeah, it's this. So I have chefs down all the time, and within like I always say, within five minutes of visiting my farm, you'll realize everything they say about sheep and ruminants is just nonsense. Like they are.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask, yeah. like, what is that?
1: Like, when
0: you, I mean, you almost went down the the let's say the vegan route, but you didn't. Like, what did it teach you? Over the last years, on that the the impact of ruminants or the importance of ruminants, um, so you had to summarize that. Not, yeah, not even sure, so but what would you start... what would you tell these chefs yeah, so when they I'm... come and say, "I've heard about uh, the impact <laughs> yeah. of methane and blah blah blah, yeah. and we should all eat plant based burgers." I'm I'm yeah. of course yeah. this is characterizing it, but what did they? How, how do they go through that transition well, I'll, I'll then you, in five
1: minutes? I'll tell you an absolutely true story. Um, there's a there's a lady called Hannah. She's happened to be talking about. Her. We started selling my sheep online and then she started buying it and then I saw her name pop up and then she contacted me on Instagram and said look can I chat to you I want to send you a few questions so she sent me a few questions she ended up sending an email that was just so long like and it was and just reading it I'm like this lady you know Hannah she's got issues she's obviously got mental health issues associated with food you know she just it was so in depth so I said I'll tell you what I, I haven't really got time to answer this I think it's better than why don't you come down so she basically came down to visit, and as I picked her up from the station, we're driving back to my farm. And she basically said, Matt, the truth is, I, like, I hate animal, you know, agriculture. I think it's all wrong, but I, I've been eating sort of like seven years. I've been vegan and I was going to die. I had to eat some meat, you know, so, and I saw yours and ethically it looked like something I could, at least it looked ethically like a good thing. And obviously I'm driving to my farm thinking, Oh shit, like she, if we get to my farm and she doesn't like it, like she, you know, it was, and she got there and like, like it's quite emotional because she just saw the sheet and she literally started crying. And I was like, it was just a you know, so I'm like, so what I say to people is, what I say is, so when I I went through my like two years stage, I ended up, I started debating. So I went on Twitter and I was following the, you mentioned earlier, you followed me on Twitter, that, I always say like Instagram is my sales and marketing division, but I'm really nice and lovely, and like it's all about stuff. But I call um, Twitter my political wing. But for two years, I just, I just talked to rewilders, and I talked to vegans, and I talked to environmentalists. And so I think what I did was try to in my head come up with something that answered every single one of their questions. So I think I've probably come up with the, the farming system that can answer all those questions. And one, the one thing I say is, I was in my caravan the other day looking over my pasture. Um, it's quite late at night. A barn owl come over. I clearly was hunting over my pasture. I took a photo and this dear old vegan chap just went, grow vegetables instead. Like, I went, okay, right, let's unpack that. And I just said, mate, you see this field there, right? I literally kill 20 sentient beings per acre per year. I fattened 20 sheep per acre per year. So I fatten about 600 sheep on about 30 acres of pasture and 10 acres of wood. Um so I, I I'm, I'm not afraid about that. I kill 20 centipede beings per acre, right? If you want me to grow veg, I'm gonna to have to play that field. And when I play that, I'm probably gonna kill 10,000 centipede beings. I'm gonna kill shrews. The buzzards won't be able to feed the, you know. And then I said, if you want going to grow potatoes, for at least three or four years, hardly anything's gonna live on that field. So not only am I killing everything that I start with, I'm ruining the ecosystem for the rest of it. But if I just keep on killing my 20 scented beings and I'm giving them a good retirement then I've created an ecosystem for literally tens of thousands of sentient beings. So like it's, so when people come and visit, they like, you just within five minutes, it's like, you just get it. So now it's now really hard arguing with these. Like they always, they don't really come and debate me now. Cause I think they, they know that they, they're, gonna be, um, they're not going to, they'll just come over and have like a bit of a, a personal crisis. Cause I think, you know, pretty quickly I'm just quite good at getting to the point and like, you know, but did, did you ever had like not that reaction, meaning
0: an opposite, like somebody that came and, and, and didn't have that switch or no, like, just, did, no, did, no,
1: it's just, um, obviously, which is very interesting. No, it's just, like, it's very interesting because if I it, honestly, if you show people this bit of wood we haven't touched and then you show them what I have, of course, yeah, it, it's like, and also the sheep just seemed so happy, like, you know, like, and I know you're, and all the sheep I'm getting, I, I'm basically buying sheep that would have been killed six months before. So I'm giving them yeah, like... So you're giving them an extra yeah, X yeah. months, like, plus still...
0: creating that. Uh, that's. I mean, it's. we had a discussion with Charles Eisenstein here actually on that, that piece. Like death is part, I don't want to uh, paraphrase, please go and listen to that episode. But uh, like death is part of this, this agriculture system or the stewarding the land, if we like it or not. Like yeah. you just made a very good case of uh, there, uh, you cannot escape it if you eat potatoes yeah. or if you don't. And and there is a strong case to be made to actually graze it. Um, also from the environmental and, and all the emission side of things. But let's leave that to the LCA yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, But what does it do, coming back to the flavor, like that woodland mix with pasture? Uh, like, uh, well, I, because your hunch was, it was amazing. Yeah. Your hunch yeah. of your butcher was, it's going to be amazing. But did yeah. it end
1: up being amazing? Yeah, it's, um because obviously what happens is all the flavors in the meat already, because they've done all their walking, What I'm now trying to do is get incredible flavor on that fat. And with fat, what happens is, like, I want animals as thin as I can get, so then I can add totally new fat. And when you dry age, that fat permeates into, if you do it properly, it permeates into the meat. So it's so important. Now, my woodland, because I've Dan Ryan from the Eden Project's been there, we think my family probably grazed it with animals 400 years ago. I probably stopped 300 years ago. The climate in Devon apparently changed dramatically 300 years ago. It became even wetter, so everyone pulled off. So we probably haven't managed that for 300 years. I would say every single plant in that wood is communicating underneath the soil with a mycelial network. Like this, and obviously if you've got one plant growing in a field, the, uh, fungi's feeding, you know, like it's doing its bit to try and get the nutrients from its surroundings. But if you've got a whole mycelium network and a whole wood that's been there for these 300 years, the stuff that it's doing under the soil, the stuff is extracting. Like you can see it. Like I went to my wood this morning, like and you, like the vibrancy of plants, you can see the vibrancy in plant. Like you do, I think we do need to start measuring like, you know, the, the nutrient levels and things, but you can see when a plant is firing, it just it's luminous it's just. Bright green, and everything in my wood all the time is bright green. Like, it's just, it's just like, and you just know, you just know this crazy stuff. And, like, yeah, so it's, um, it's, so these sheep, they're eating that. And my job is to try and make them as relaxed as possible. So their fermentation machine, I do sort of, I've got issues, like, I think, like, say, sourdough things. I think in London, in East London, like, people are forgetting that, say, the whole regen thing is about. They're thinking it's about sourdough and it's about, but I actually think it's about the vitamins. But all these people are like, they're getting such so a high profile for basically doing fermentation. And I'm like, like you've got sheep, like that's what they do. <laughs> like, so you need to respect them more, like because I'm sure you they're a lot better at getting the nutrients and that. But but you just, if I can get those animals, and my job is to make them with less because what sheep will do, they go and eat in the morning. And then, you know, goes into their first stomach, comes up, and then they chew the cud. And then it goes back down. And that's the bit that's really important. I want you, this sheep farmers do this thing called alive or dead, where they go to a field. It's like, don't worry, it's not, it's not, it's not cool. You'll see a sheep. No, no, I mean,
0: I'm interested. Yeah, you see this a sheep. Interesting face.
1: You, you'll see a sheep just zonk that, like, and yeah. you just think that's dead. You, you go to, you then get close, people say, farmers are like alive or dead. They'll do a video, alive or dead, alive or dead. And then you'll get, and the closer you get to it, before it jumps up, because basically it's fermenting. It's just relaxed, it's chilled. It's just there, like, letting its body just get all the nutrients. So what I want is my sheep looking as dead as possible during that stage, because I know then they're extracting every bit of nutrient and that's going onto their fat cover. And they never are dead. You know, like, one day I'll do it, like, live, and it might be dead. I mean, my, my sheep are owed, and the other one does die. A not less than I thought, actually. but But, you know, my whole job is to get them eating incredible stuff. But also the remarkable thing is I've got 150 plants growing in that wood. It's obviously self-heal. I mean, everyone talks about it. It's not like it, but I but I witness it every day in my life. It's cheap. Because you know, I'm getting old sheep. You know, there's some farms decided they're not good enough anymore for breeding. You know, he's going to send them off the abattoir. I buy those. Some of them are quite healthy. They might There might be a reason why, you know, he's offloaded them. But more often than not, it's just, dead. you know, they're at an age where they just, they can't really process enough glass to be able to feed them in the lamb. But I just put them in the wood. And I like a simple, like they just come out looking like rock stars. Like if they, they just fish, sheep that are healthy will go in there, eat a bit, but they'll just want to go back in the field and like get fat. But the ones that are not too well, just stay there. So I just basically block them in, you know, and then, and they just get healthy. The transformation self medicine. Yeah. And obviously I've just seen it so many times now, like, well sheep, you think you're bucket, put them in two weeks later, they just come out. And then to be honest, I think their body gets into balance, so and then they then get fat. I mean, you know, my job is to fatten sheep, so put a fat couple on them, but, you know, but but also the beauty of my system is, and where I suppose if you go on my Instagram, where I you know become quite well known as well, is um, I remember the first lot of sheep we got. Literally, mum, we bought like 60 sheep, and mum said, like right, Matt, you're new to farming. right? you must never, never name an animal, never get emotional. You know, you've got to be tough and brutal." Like, you know, these are the here to get found. And so, okay, cool. Literally, got this first 60. The sheep came running up to us. I just like basically wanted to be pet, you know, pet, petted. And I well, I'm just looking above like, oh, Jesus So basically, what happens with sheep is obviously they've got two teats. And if they have triplets, there's always a spare lamb. And often a farmer will bolt feed that. But then you basically humanize the animal. But then they ended up, you know, going back into flock. So every time I buy one of those, and it's not very often, I'll buy a flock of like two years ago. I bought a flock of Dorsets, which are quite lovely sheep, but they're quite they're not particularly big fans of people. But There's one Dorset came running up, and I've kept that one. So I've now probably got ten sheep. Well, now what I know I've got is farmers who've got their own tame lambs. They they send them to me, so I've probably got four sheep that are basically pets of my other farmers. But their kids have grown up. I've got six of my own, and I call them my management team. So what's incredible is you just learn things, don't you? So I'll buy. Sheep from Bob and Moor, they probably see a farmer twice a year, they're wild as hell. They come into my field and they'll and you have these 10 managers yeah, that keep them in check because, yeah, so, yeah they'll it. be like, so I've got about I've like 240 sheep. So you go, 40 sheep, they'll they'll arrive and they'll look at me like they basically look at me like I'm a wolf, like a predator. The first thing I do is then get the dog in, my Morgan, he's quite funny, and that makes the sheep suddenly get together. But these sheep are still very scared of me. I then walk into the field. And literally, ten sheep come running up to me for a cuddle, so I'm there just basically cuddling sheep. And all the other sheep are literally just staring. It. They're just staring know, at it yeah. But then the next time I go in the field, they don't move a muscle. I can walk around the whole flock, and not a single sheep moves. Like they, and they say sheep have got the best facial recognition of any animal on on earth. Like they have to, you know, like if you're your lamb, your you know, your mums' all faces all look very similar. They obviously can tell by the bar, but. So within a sheep, as soon as you walk in out field once, it'll remember you. So obviously when I go in the second time, it's just, yeah, so it's, it's just quite a cool thing. Though. And
0: I mean, it's a potential robot, but what's next? Like what would you envision? Now you have to set up this system that works really well in your farm. Yep. You have the guaranteed market. Um, you spend quite a bit of time looking at your land, looking at your sheep, which is great. But yeah. well, what do you feel is okay? And you've learned all this stuff on the ruminant impact on land and on, on woods, which is incredible because we look at woods in many places and think this is sort of the optimum state of etc. And you've shown that it's absolutely not the case. Like there's a whole world beyond that. Yeah. And we look at very degraded land, honestly, that could yeah. be, de- could be regenerated. Yeah. So what, what do you see? Because you're you're not close to any time of retirement like what yeah.
1: do you see as as next yeah. what are your next step so I, I, I was just thinking we ought to talk about the, some sort of idea to, to to invest money um there's something called the government i'm trying to work it away where i'm not i don't need to rely on government money you know it's possible but for me the uk government position i, I think europe's heading this direction is basically investing in like big corporate companies um investing in like you know um offsetting carbon you know and by doing that the government's going to let get people to plant trees and um you know and sort of the offset the idea of offsetting um for me there's something very interesting they're looking at which is like nature recovery schemes and what they're looking at doing is you need to have 500 connecting uh, uh, acres and i've only got 40 at the moment like auntie's got 40 it's definitely aimed at the big landowners and trying to get Farmers working together, it has to be 500 acres of connected land. But for me, in my woodland, we've got something called a willow tip, and a willow tip is actually UK's fastest climbing breeding bird. And I've actually got loads of them. <laughs> like, Devon Wildlife Trust have come down. And that was a funny story. So they didn't believe me. Like, I, I, over the winter, I was feeding all the birds in the thing, and I've been an ornithologist. Willow tips look really similar to marsh tip, but there's just slight differences. I found a Devon Wildlife Trust, and I think I've got willow tips. And they said, look. You probably haven't. They're going to be marsh so tits. They're very similar. I went, okay, okay, okay. They okay, said, so "What we'll do? We'll come out in spring. What we'll do? We'll play the voice, the the the, the sound, the song of the male willow tip. and then what well, if there's any in there? They it might respond. Really it might might take hours, but they'll eventually come and you know try and fight the territory. I said, okay, cool. So they came out in spring, and this is no word of a lie. chuckled Rob Purdy, very good mate of mine now. First time I met him, came down. We literally got 20 meters from the woodlands. and he went. I don't need to do anything, you've got willow tears. So we then walked in the wood and literally, it's all on it's all on Instagram, there's a video of two willow tears building a nest, literally five, like 10 meters from where we walked in. So basically, what I'm looking at doing is we've got the River Kerry, which, um, yeah, runs along and we've got a very ancient railway line that hasn't been used in like 70 years. So my idea is to try and access buy or lease the land on the railway lane, and then basically start trying to connect the railway line and the um, river, and start increasing the breeding grounds of the willow tip, whilst farming in a way that feeds people and helps nature. So that's my big project now, is, and I think the, the, that government scheme, it's not totally official yet, they're doing trials, but I think for investment, looking at that would be really interesting for people, because I basically, there's a bit of land about a mile away, and because we we, we all my money is going on cheap and it's going on we're actually building a barn version. I just said to someone, if someone's interested in this land, you know, you can buy it and I'll rent it off you just, just on Instagram and about twenty people contacted. I was like, Oh right, okay. But something Okay, happened something now. is there, yeah. Yeah, but that land's so but I think there's gonna be for me I don't there's gonna be it's obviously legislation is pointing towards big corporate companies offsetting, particularly like the, um, you know, the property sector, you know, big property developments. You know, I'm pretty okay on this. And I've got friends who do it and I, you know, I've been looking at it for a couple of years, but to me, it's, it's a bit of a con for our, our government. It's a bit of a, it's aimed at landowners. It's, it's going to encourage corporate companies to buy out farming land. I think personally we need to keep people farming um, and we need to try and get small landowners working together and looking at these nature recovery schemes. So basically, i think and then we could start using the you know the the um the technology that's there you know we can use like drone technology to measure biodiversity water storage and carbon you know sequestration
0: and and so how 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 do you envision that as a would it be some kind of because of course it it's very interesting to get this land to buy this land or lease it very long term but then there's always this this little uh, this this pressure of speculation like to sell it in in x years um, or flip it because which happens yeah, in real yeah. estate because of and, and so how do we counter that how do we make sure this is long term is able, that you are able to farm it long term or others that are farming yeah. uh, with nature and producing food for people like how do we make sure that land doesn't become the speculation ball that we just keep kicking around and um, people say, make a lot of money on the transactions
1: I would say like the, we need to, the more we need to look at how we are going to structure um, the offsetting for me, it's, it's pretty. I mean, obviously, we're in the UK. You know, it's the summer, end of summer of two two thousand twenty-two. It's been incredibly dry. We we now get incredibly wet winters, and we're getting dry summers, and especially dry springs. Storing water, and I think worldwide storing water is going to be the most important. Instead of
0: draining everything yeah. out your land, and it
1: is. You know, bless you know the beaver folks. I'm, I'll tell you a beavers, but I think. The more we go into place, so if you, if you, the more organic matter you get, the more carbon you've got in the soil, the more water you, you hold. And so for me, it's almost like water storage is the biggest factor. And so I think working, getting that measured first of all. So you've definitely got, you know, how much water you're storing on your, you know, and if you look in the UK at the moment, the, the, the sewage companies are just putting so much sewage into the water, you know, rivers, the rivers are low and it's just, you know, there's the Armageddon really, <laughs> like, those water companies, I actually worked with Southwest Water for a bit. They actually they did give me a bit of money to do some fencing, but I totally ignored it because I, I wanted to fence in a different way. But it's in their interest to get farmers to hold that water on land, get it clean on land before it goes in. So I think there's a huge, huge opportunity there, actually. So water storage. Um, so basically, so I think my idea would be, and I, I was only just sort of thinking about it, and I'm not, is get people either long-term leasing or buying land. But if they're buying land, it would be all part of a big pool of people and hopefully they would get money for offsetting. They would be getting money for carbon sort. Of. There would be the return yeah. basically. That's the return would be. I would be basically partly leases, partly yeah. small leases, yeah.
0: and yeah. and some yeah. ecosystem so I,
1: services. I, I know that I can guarantee that I can make an income for my sheep, and it's you know I've only just scratched the surface of what's you know where I can take this, um, but I then also think I will introduce cows into my system, and I think I'll introduce chickens. You know, like. And what I really want to move towards is like multi story growing within woodlands. So I think that's where the real, that's where we can produce huge amounts of food. So I want to focus on those things, but meanwhile, use the, the willow tit as a way of expanding things. Um, because, you know, <laughs> the more they just go where I'm doing stuff with the shit, there's no willow tit in my uncle's bit, but the willow tits, every time you work, and it's not a big it's surprise. It's a, a
0: canary, in, a canary in the coal mine. Yes, yes. But on the good side of things. Yeah, Yeah. It's,
1: yeah. So you like, willow tits in the wood. Like it's um, it's not a big surprise. Nature, like the idea that we have deciduous, I see what happens when you just get deciduous with them without ruminants and it you just the canopy comes over and in time it just, you know, everything just it just dies.
0: That's what the, the a lot of the rewilding people taught us. Like it's not like you need management. Like it's mm-hmm, been yeah. managed for centuries and if we like it or not, we have to take our role as the keystone species yeah. And, yeah. and we've yeah. been managing ruminants and yeah. you cannot just put a fence around and, and let everything out and yeah, hope that nature magically <laughs> well, reaches some kind of equilibrium.
1: Well, Cause there's, there's quite a few, I mean, these are the people who hate me most. Um, so there's a growth of people who, um, they're just doing woods they're fencing off woodlands. Things are growing and people are treating them like some sort of messiah. But I'm like, mate, like people are going to think you're a genius for 20 years, but you're going to die. And then 20 years after you're dead, people are going to realize what an idiot you were. And <laughs> like, like, I'm quite, and I, and they're like, he'll get really upset. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll go down and take some photos. So I pop down and an hour later, I take, the photo you can just see it like it. it's it's so weird when you I,
0: i've it. thought about like like how like different managed woodlands like you could pro you could just show it or even listen to it like if you just yeah, listen yeah, to yeah. the incredible yeah. audio of yeah. the two forests or the two woodlands next to each yeah. other yeah and and i've seen there was a an exhibition by I, for, of course forgot the name but he recorded a lot of nature sounds and and projected it on a wall yeah, so you could see, yeah, yeah, yeah. you could not only hear it, yeah. but you could see yeah. where the Jaguar came wow. in. And you could see, because it was another yeah. line. And yeah. it was a fully dark room in Milan. And you could basically, the full wall was, of course, very really high, really yeah. big room. And you could see the sounds coming in. And yeah. you could hear the difference between uh, a forest that was even selectively cut. Yeah. Like you could not see the difference. Apparently on pictures, the forest both look equally yeah. healthy. Yeah. But you could hear the difference yeah. because it was selectively yeah. cut and there was yeah. less wildlife. Yeah. So I think there's, there's something on that yeah. sound piece as well. Yeah. I make it that visual again yeah. to see like we can, you feel the difference immediately when you walk into yeah. there, but probably yeah. it's easier to comment on Twitter than it actually is to yeah. go and say, okay, let's look at the difference between managed and not managed. Yeah.
1: I think you're right. But it's a, quite fascinating. Yeah. That's a, I've got a feeling my mate, Bordy, well, either when I was talking about it earlier on, I think he might. Have, I think he might have sent me that actually. But yeah, I think I, that, I will send it to you. I will find yeah, it, put I mean, it in the uh, links
0: below. Yeah. I'm sorry, I forgot the name. It's a, a very, very famous name. artist for sure. But I'm the nature sound part is yeah. is so the, how do, so you're gonna you have to get to big scale because otherwise you cannot participate in these schemes.
1: Yeah, and but, I think for me, but like, still keep it. Yeah. Well, I think out I,
0: of the corporate I, hands because we've
1: been farming a long time and like because we're like an established family. My granddad was so respected, but my stepdad obviously wasn't. I always say with farming, and I think, I think people, a lot of people are scared about getting into farming and they think they'll be treated. But I always say with farming, and I've proven it to be honest, is if you, if you just, obviously I do social media, but if you just keep your head down, work hard and pay your bills on time and you're not a twat or you're not like, you know, you're not an idiot. After about three years, people start taking you seriously and it's taken me three years and now finally people are actually okay he's alright he pays his bills you know and and I think people are going to locally are beginning to you know and I think what's been very dramatic for me this year is my whole farm I, I, it has been about giant resistance ever since the inspiration of Steve Gabriel so the way I farm is that class grow long strip graze it push it down produce some mulch and this year you know it's just so noticeable. If you drive past my land, like it's literally rained t- rain 10 days ago. Everybody else had no grass at all. Their grass is just appearing. My grass has exploded. And I've, I've got 240 sheep on a very small farm. And they've got no strip grazing. And it just works. It just, you know. So I think no farmer can know. Every farmer, you know, you, you keep such an eye on each other's land. And I, I've only got a tiny tractor, so I can look over hedges. But all the other farmers have got huge tractors. They can look at mine. It's just, they would have thought really strange seeing these sheep strip grazing, but now it's just so noticeable. think undeniable. Yeah, I think people locally are beginning to, they will start thinking, I think really he's not like his stepdad, he is like his granddad. And I think as soon as they start thinking that, I think they'll, you know, they'll get on the side. And I think this year that's, I would like to think that's happened really. Um, But it will take a long while But but the beauty is, because we've got this railway track, it's now all woodland. I don't need to have the land right next to me because if I've got the railway track, I can have a land that's a mile away, but it will still be connecting like a, like a connected Like, like I can connect And the same with the river carry like, you, so I think that's how, so I don't need to worry too much about the land right next to me. I just need to worry, you know, so that's, so that could be another.
0: Is it somewhere connected to the
1: archery yeah, basically? Yeah. And it would just be, you know, if, if you plant the rice tree, I mean, between me, well, I say between me and you. <laughs> but, there are a few other people listening you know, to So when I actually <laughs> walked on the track and there's a land about a mile away, I actually saw Willow tit in there. So they're obviously already using it. Like, you know, it's like, it's just already, you know, like, I wasn't going to tell anybody that. Like, it's like, but I think it's... um Maybe I it guess, was the
0: other one. Maybe you yeah, didn't see I might it correctly. Have watched, I it
1: actually, couldn't be, it couldn't be. Um, but the other thing I think in terms of investments, which I... I don't know why. People yeah. So, what
0: would you tell investors? Let's say we're not on the Oxford <laughs> Farming Conference, yeah. which would be fun, but we're on yeah. stage at um, actually. There's a, an upcoming one. Uh, probably it's out when this yeah. is be out after that. But in Amsterdam, we're we're sitting on stage. A lot of bankers, investors, okay. family offices, etc., that are excited that follow you on on okay. Instagram or other people. And okay. what would you tell them? Obviously, without g- giving investment advice, but where to look and and
1: how potentially to put money to okay. work. Well, I'd say firstly. I look at the economic press, actually the financial press, and I have to say I think the standard journalism is pretty dreadful. <laughs> like, like um, that's why we're recording this podcast. Uh, it's just they they just rehash press releases, and it just drives me wild. Like yesterday, I saw something about you need to invest in proteins. What I say is, if you don't want to invest in, if you don't think Regen Agri right is right. Then invest your money in alternative proteins, but also invest in the pharmaceutical industry because one is going to need. To, I mean, it's just fat. Like if you eat the sludge that they're proposing you eat, then you're going to need pharmaceuticals. Like you know, so those two go together. If you're not going to do that, basically, if you invest in that, you're you're
0: creating the market for yeah. your pharmaceutical yeah, investments, yeah, yeah. which is a, a, a yeah. quote yeah. unquote fair strategy. Yeah, so yeah, it's
1: brilliant. You know, so good luck to you. Um, but if you if you actually like humanity, but don't call mad. <laughs> <you're totally, laughs> Now what no one's talking about is they're talking about the vegan, you know, the growth in vegan people. I think what's becoming very obvious that without government intervention, without raising taxes for meat, lockdowns have proven that very few of the population are into the you know the alternative meats, the beyond burgers, you know, the impossible meats, those sort of things. So at any one time, about one to two percent of the population are vegan. The vegan did their own research six years ago. They never talked about it, but they did their own research, and it shows that 84% of vegans give up after one year. And I did some rough sums. So at any one time, so 1% of the population, say the population of the UK is six, you know, 60 million, there's probably 1 million vegans at any one time. A year later, about, well, 840,000 of those will be ex-vegans, so I reckon there's probably in the UK now about 10 million ex-vegans. I think those people are wonderful. They obviously care about the planet. They do care about sentient beings, but they've gone through the process where they're realizing that actually being on the vegan diet is, for some reason, they've given up, haven't they? That market is the one that I, they're the ones buying all my private sales because they're looking for incredibly ethical farming systems. So I would say focus on that, Nobody's really talking about I haven't heard anybody talk about it, but that, that's the fastest growing, most ethical market in the UK. And I don't have to eat meat, but I do think it's obvious to me that you need animal fats of some sort. So I would personally, where I would invest a lot of money is. That, that's my perfect next question. What would you do? Yeah, like you would folk like a billion dollar, a billion pounds sterling. Like what would you, I how would you put that to work? I would get Jersey cows. I would basically arable is where we can make the most change the, the, where we're farming now we can produce really incredibly healthy animal livestock we can produce really healthy jersey cows for example what you need to do we need to start basically at the moment all our farming systems are separate dairy high you know highland um, arable and it's not rocket science it's what they used to do but where I would put huge money in is mobile dairy units on arable systems and I would and it's happening in Germany, there's lots of systems now. But to me, you if you can make the dairy part of the arable system, so you know, you're doing a regenerative, you're grazing your cattle, you've got a mobile system, um, and then you know, to me, you could then start measuring that milk and I'm sure from a regenerative system it would be so, so good for you. The cattle are outside you know, and he, you know, maybe, you know, you need to work on the, Would urban. you then
0: do like your arable system in sort of a, a permanent pasture way? I mean, the wild farming people and like, how do you make sure there is not just leftovers yeah, from say, whatever say, they say, were growing? Like, how do you say, make sure the cows get there? Well, my, my,
1: my friends of mine have got a 800 acre arable farm in, um, we We slowly beginning to work on getting sheep as part of the system, but you imagine any one time you probably want to do arable for three years and you want to graze for three, you know, three years. So you basically, you know, if you work on that farm, uh, Really as a
0: separate, as a, yeah. as a part of the rotation, yeah, not yeah, necessarily yeah. grazing arable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, not
1: grazing arable. So basically, you know, yeah. you need to get, you need to have your um your um, arable legs, you know, whatever you do to get that soil mm. working. You need cattle to do that. Um, you you should, need to cover crops, yeah. Yeah, so you need cover crops, get that working, have a mobile farming system. So, you know, you don't collecting the milk and they're basically regenerating the land. You don't need to use fertiliser, and those animals it can be incredible. If they're the right animals, you know, I think we need to move away from Friesian and hostile. We need to move towards Jersey cattle. You know, they're just more, they're able to turn that product into something that's just incredible. You know, I'd love, I'd love Friesian. So I grew up with them. And, like I probably love them a lot more than I love sheep, but, but I think they as, don't fit as an animal. That. You know, we need to go back to the animals that can turn, you know, all of that, you know, what's growing into it. And that's why we probably do need to start looking towards back to, you know, if you're going to raise cattle on those systems, you know, like, you know, like the red the so that sort of thing. So basically, so I've got a friend who he's called Fred Price and he really ought to interview Fred. Fred's just a genius guy, probably, I think early thirties, went to Oxford to Cambridge, his folks had a 200 acre arable farm. We went to Oxford to Cambridge, came back and went to the farm. His parents are horrified, but he basically became like, the <laughs> they best. sent him there and then he came yeah, back. And then he came him. back but he basically became the best chemical farmer, you know, he was using chemicals, his yield was going up, but he was spending more and more money. And then one year everything just crashed, like yield crashed. And you know, he was the first person talking to me that I ever had talk about this. But obviously it's happening worldwide now where your soil just can't do that chemical process where it just you know, it doesn't matter how much nitrogen you put on, it's the soil's you know is done. So yeah. then he what he then started doing was planting herbal lays, he gets tamworth pigs. And he now, we help him, we, we help his supply chain. So with me and my butcher, we set him up in a restaurant in London. They buy all his Tamworths. But now he's like five years in. It's, you have to, it has to be seen to believe his pigs are basically his input. So he's making money on his input. And he's now producing like heritage world class grains. And you know, he is part of that sourdough, cool East London thing. So perhaps I shouldn't stack him off too much. Um I did some rough Like sums. a good slice of bread with some interesting
0: butter, <laughs> or some interesting baking. Yeah. I mean that, that yeah. there's it's part of yeah it's, a, cool, yeah, it's cool. yeah, it's part of it, but it shouldn't
1: only be that. Yeah. Like fermentation like we learn yeah. happens but what I did, in, in ruminants, which is important. But I did some sums. And this is it, because actually friends of the earth in Northern Ireland got in touch with me about three years ago. They wanted to talk about something. So I ended up doing some sums for them. And the mice. This needs, you know, the, the economists out there. Obviously, you need to, you know, take. I wouldn't say the pinch of salt, but I looked at how many pigs Fred was producing from his land, and then at the moment we've got nine million pigs in factories, um, which I I abhor, and it's got, you know, that's that. It is. But if twenty percent of arable farmers in the UK did what Fred did and used pigs as part of their rotation, then we those nine million pigs. Could be taken from factories and put on land. And then I think in time, you're going to realize that because he's not paying for chemicals, pigs are his chemical. They're always fertilizer. He's actually making money from his input. So in time, I think you're going to- Making money from your inputs. It's yeah. a, I mean,
0: yeah. yeah. That's, that's the, the yeah. one, I wouldn't say one of the tricks, but that, like, how do you switch that conversation to how do you grow as much food for people? Without all the inputs, or actually make money from the inputs, which is the ruminant or the pig, yeah. or and but that's such a mental flip that yeah. that's gonna yeah. like you have to see it to believe it, and then do the numbers, and then still probably yeah. many people would say well, no, that's it impossible. Either, it sounds too
1: good to be true. Think about it, I thought about it. It's even funnier flip is what what we sort of say down here is. I want to try and talk the farmer's language, you know, and. The whole regen thing, like farmers down here, they just raise their eyebrows. And so what we think is, I think at the moment I'm regenerating my land, I think my granddad did these things, my stepdad did even worse. I'm now using the sheep to regenerate it. But once it's regenerated, when it's working, I'm then moving to like low input farming. So basically spending as little as you can, the less you spend, the less, you know, the less you need to make. But now I'm suddenly thinking like, <laughs> you could be a high input, but Low, you know, like the pigs is you end know, up because you've got pigs on there, it, it's actually a high input, but it's just not one that you are paying for. <laughs> like, it's a, do you know what I mean? Is we're talking about a low input system, but actually, you know, right? Like, so at the moment, I've got 240 sheep, it looks like too many, but that day, they, every day, they probably because they're quite big, they're probably pooing out six kilos of poo a day,
0: yeah. So the input, but of course, yeah. the input
1: doesn't come from outside
0: your farm gate, which you'd input, but like the, I think that's the, the we forget that in. In agriculture, if you run it like a business, we would never ask that question to to a bike factory. I have said it on the podcast. People are not going to say, "Yeah, you already mentioned it." But like, you would never ask the question: How can you squeeze out as many bikes? It doesn't matter your input cost. It doesn't matter your labor cost. It doesn't matter if you have to run twenty four seven. Whatever diesel generator you have to put on, it doesn't yeah. matter. Like, we only want to know your output. <laughs> yeah, and somehow in farming, yeah. like the not, the number of bikes. Yeah. And by and somehow in farming, we always ask only that question. We never ask, but actually, what did it cost to produce this, and how far did it come from, or yeah. the environmental cost, the financial cost, the, yeah. just the, the 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 issue of having all these lorries come on your yeah. on on your land to bring stuff, and to and then you have to get on your big tractor to to ride it out. Like it's it is input and output, and and we never talk about input. We only ever talk about the yeah. output, which yeah. is ridiculous from an environmental and from an economic perspective. Yeah and apparently you run systems you are able in general you the the general you that are way less input or even zero with really good and amazing output that we are find difficult to believe yeah and does really good margins
1: (laughs) i mean my when i started three years ago i wouldn't dare have more than like 100 probably 100 sheep strip grazing which is interesting and you're
0: you're like this whole feeding the world thing like there's a limit it's 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 like we say much land is is under stocked and overgrazed, but it turns out to be really true like there's so much more possible than
1: i've now got 240 sheep and i'm actually and that's after a drought i could actually go up by another 60 like my land you know you, i say what i mean you, i think there's some questions you asked me before thing and one of the questions i one of the things i want to change the most is a Either journalist, you're really
0: like bringing up every question. Or it's amazing. Like, you're doing my job. Like, what would you change? No, um, great question, Matt. Thank the, the you for it's going to be my final one because this is also starting to approach the okay, right. I think the longest interview we ever did, but it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> okay. So thank you for making it until now. If you're still listening, That's good. but what
1: would you love to change? There's two things. One is either not just e- the journalists and the economic press, but journalists either need to sort themselves out and actually start thinking critically, critically rather than Really press releases because, or we just need to ignore mainstream media because they're just, they're just at the moment, journalism's gone very wrong and they're just, they're so like obsessed with where they are in the, you know, like, and when I see in the food industry, you know, bless them, some of friends and they, they know I say <laughs> to me like this, but you, you still need to start getting on board. You need to think critically about everything you're told. Um, so on that sort of point, you know, so, if the journalists aren't going to sort of stuff out, you just need to start looking elsewhere for information. But the thing is, what's happening at the moment in farming and everywhere is everyone's talking about like peer-reviewed things. Like, so I, I, I you need to start. Where's the
0: peer-reviewed papers? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it's all the time. Where's that peer-reviewed? I'm like, mate, like, you're not peer worried I've got six plants growing, and that one I've got 140. They said no, but I need to get statistical data. I'm like, mate, I. Like, here's a photo. I don't go with me. two
0: people. Look at each yeah. other. You are your peers. You're <laughs> yeah, reviewing yeah, exactly. and look at the difference. So I yeah.
1: think like we've got to stop. I think we do actually need to listen too far. We need to trust the judgment of what farmers are seeing with their own eyes. And if they take a photo, you know, like, and I mean, I've just taken base measurements of mine, but we need, you need to start realizing the farmers, all we actually want to do is feed people and actually earn enough money to live. Like, we're not, like, we don't actually want to destroy the planet. Like, like, start working with us and trusting us because, like, I, you know, I sit there, I'm probably four or five hours a day just watching my land and walking looking, and I'm like no one knows that better. Like I know that I know what's going on. So start, start trusting what farmers are saying. And one thing I would say is, my granddad was told to feed the nation, and he did it. And within two years, he turned a farmer out. Farmers are capable of changing things incredibly quickly, like if they need to, and everyone's on side. Like farmers can do it, but we need to agree on. We need to agree on how much carbon are we storing in soils? Because that's the base thing at the moment. One science says, one people are saying, he doesn't store much carbon. You only put it so deep. And other people, other scientists are saying we're storing loads. We need to get that right. First of all, are we, are ruminants actually storing carbon? How much are they storing? Can we agree that? If they're not, we'll get rid of them. really, will eat fake meat. But if we are, if that's how we want to get carbon from up there, down the ground, we need to then work out how to do it people. So, hopefully that answers.
0: And, and how does that, because you mentioned before, the water piece is almost more interesting or more... Yeah. um It's going to be all about water. seems to be easier to measure, yeah. like water yeah. holding capacity. You see all these great videos on, on YouTube and Instagram of very dry land, reasonably grazed land, like a cup of water upside down, see how fast it goes in. I mean, that's, you don't need a pay review paper for that. Yeah. Anybody can see what's yeah. your... That at least, what's your infiltration rate is yep. very easy to do. Yep. Like, do you see that as a as an easier in than all this this fluffy carbon talk that we're I th- doing? I think
1: what I think it's um. I mean, I, there is no drone technology where they can measure. They can set things up. In, I think they. I think these things are actually all incredibly measurable now. Um, but this is. They
0: are. You can see
1: infiltration. Yeah. rates. Yeah, you can so see like like, the like, vegetation. You can yeah. see quite a lot. But I like so my granddad, right? <laughs> <laughs> I literally had a talk last week. There's a guy who's quite hopeful. right? Like, George Mumbai, I had a bit of a blow up with last week. And it's like, there's a chap called Guy Schwab who, you know, they may be lovely people, but I'm not a big fan. So anyway, I, they start talking to me and all these people just piled in and started having a go at me. And they're like, mate, how'd you know you're holding more water? You know, and I'm like, well, hey, I just, I walk every bit of land every day. Like I know, but I said also, my granddad put these drainage pipes in when I started in the winter they would all, all the water grain and it would all come out. You know, I, I can see it. But now after three years, like every year, Doesn't. less and less and less and less. Like, you know, I, I can, like, it it's has obvious. to go somewhere. Like, yeah. yeah, can you, like, it's if it's not, yeah, if it's not coming off there, it's staying on that, like, you know, believe me if you want, but like, I'm telling you, that's, it's obvious to my land. So they say for every percentage increase in organic matter, you heard 20, 000, I'm sure you've heard of this thousands times. We but you heard like 20,000 more litres of, and it's just true, like you you're within three years and I've done nothing that no one else can do. All I've done is strip grace sheet. That's all I've done. Nothing you know, now we've got electric fencing, it's you know, I've I've done nothing on my farm that no one else in the whole country can do. But the amount of water is now holy and it's obvious from the start, you know, my roots are still getting that water that was main, you know, the total surface is dry but they're getting you know, like it's just it's bit, you know, and, and you're
0: getting phone calls now of your neighbors. Like, are they... I mean, they, they, they look oh, over, have, the fence, have, over the fence, over the hedgerows on quite, their big tractors. Yeah. But are they are they starting to knock your door? Like, no, we thought um, you were crazy, but I have your grass started, looks
1: amazing. I have started seeing... There's a dairy farm offset. And they've, this with, this neighbor started strip grazing their dairy cows. And I've never seen that in, like, 40 years. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. And I think... It's um, very
0: interesting. There's a satellite picture of... I think it's Mark Shepherd's farm uh, from above, obviously. Yeah. And you can see... Which neighbors have started putting yeah. keyline design? Yeah, okay. in. Like it's <laughs> amazing. You can see you see his yeah. farm, and then you see the others, and you see where it stops, like exactly, and everything is straight yeah. again. And then you see these really nice curves, and so you can see the spread almost. And of course, yeah, if yeah. you talk to him, you would know exactly which ones yeah. are where and how, etc. But you can see this impact, probably on yours as well. You could see over the next years, you can see how this like the the, the greener grass yeah, and yeah, the yeah, better yeah. growth grass, be, because that all you can measure from satellite. That's not what so would be
1: difficult. more interesting is so. I used to play cricket. I don't know if, I, if where you are, of cricket, but like I used to play. for my lo- a lot. <laughs> I used to play for my local side thirty years ago, and for twenty five years I was in London. I then came back and started playing for them three years ago, and they're all sheep farmers, and they they like put up with me for three years. They actually they you know they see me on Instagram. They call me like the Instagram farmer, but they actually. I did an event on my wood, like an American company came over to a the banquet and there was some uh, tickets. So I invited some of the cricket guys along and genuinely, like they were blown away. Like they just, I mean, you see, this is the bit again, I've had chefs. I've had, I, I, I could get anybody who doesn't know farming to come to my land. And I, if I want to get excited, I, I can yeah. get them thinking I'm a genius and the best farmer in the world, right? But it's but not your it's neighbor not farmers true. and your cricket mates are different. <laughs> yeah. Right? They, within a nanosecond, by the time they park their cars and walk towards me, they already knew if I was a culturist or not. You know, they just, they, it's like, is he making money? Is that, you know? And I had so much grass and I was doing it so differently. And like the bits and their grass had stopped growing by then. And I, cause I'd, um, you know, it was just all day. And one of them was so, but I didn't really think about it. The next day, I was also cutting hay and the guy said, you know, how much, um, you know, he, he actually very kindly got his mate to bail it all up. And we got a really good yield on my hay. And he just said something so nice on, it's, you know, basically like, you know, mate, actually, you're a pretty good farmer. And that was all it took. Honestly, I feel emotional. That's all it took it was him, like an actual farmer to go, actually, mate, like, you're pretty good. <laughs> like, it was like... The, the imposter syndrome yeah, was solved. Then, yeah. yeah. But, like, but it, to be honest, I sort of, I know it sounds cocky, but I, um, I just know it's working. You know what I mean? I don't, it was lovely to hear from them, but I sort of, you know, when I was doing the restaurants and chefs, I knew it was bullshit. I knew it was nonsense. Like, you know, I knew how good I was. It wasn't very good, but this, I just, I'm not saying I could be good on another farm, but on my family farm, I know I, I could be, I couldn't be trying harder to be better. You know, I just, if I went to another farm, who knows? <laughs> I saw sort of, cock it up. But we'll, just, we'll see that now with the railway line. Yeah. How that's yeah. going to go. I, yeah.
0: I want to thank you so much for your time, Matt, to come on. I mean, you have a lot to do. Like you need to spend another four or five hours today looking at your land, <laughs> which is very important. Let's <laughs> not, I'm, I'm, I'm not making a joke I, I, here. I'm not being cynical. I, um, it's, true. it's fundamental because that observation leads yeah. to i mean the results and the flavor we we just heard about but i want to thank you so much for coming on i, I don't think it's going to be the last time i really enjoyed okay, it cool. it's probably the longest interview we ever did but, but with really <laughs> really good reasons <laughs> and so many other rabbit holes to unpack okay, so i want okay. to thank you for now i will put all the links below on of your social media for people to follow to come and visit to to see what's possible and to taste what's possible and to understand and to to listen to farmers because they are the only ones that really know the land So thank you so much for your time, for all that you do, and for taking the time to come here and and share your story.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links discussed, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash post. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website. Investing in regenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you like this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.